Hello, and welcome back to RoyCast, the original Succession podcast. My name is Brendan. Joining me, as always, is my co-host, Gabby. Hey, Gabby. Hey, Brendan. Hello, everybody. Uh, The day has come. We are here to discuss the Succession series finale, titled With Open Eyes. Joining us today is a critic whose writing has appeared in The Ringer, The New Yorker, The New York Times, and other outlets. He is a contributing editor to Cinemascope Magazine and the author of several books, most recently on the director David Fincher. He also previously appeared on this program to discuss the season three premiere Secession and in an off-season episode about David Fincher's film The Game. Returning is our friend Adam Naiman. Hey, Adam, thanks for doing this. Hey, guys, thank you. Thank you very much for having me. I wondered um, if we would start a little bit as we have in the past when discussing season finales on this show with talking a bit about our general impressions of the season in the rear view mirror. We talk about this, or I talk about this on a show sometimes as trying to see, you know, the shape or the structure of an arc that may be somewhat harder to detect or invisible as it's in motion. And Adam, I thought I would start by asking you for your thoughts, because you and I have, have chatted a little bit about this during the season. But we've kind of, I think you and I have agreed on what some of the best hours of this season have been. And I think yeah. we've also kind of circled similar, perhaps concerns, about the way the season's very plotted and linear structure kind of bumps up against what maybe have been the more customary rhythms of this show. Do you know what I'm talking about? I I do. And, you know, I think I like you using the word shape because, um, you know, in, 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 in our lives as, you know, writers and as, as people and participants in the social media sphere, I think we'd agree the three of us all, all do like movies you know, which are like self, those are the self-contained units of content as opposed to the, as opposed to the sequential serialized units of, of, of content. And that idea of shape is really hard sometimes to gauge with television. Not that TV doesn't have structure, but it has a structure that kind of lends itself to gold bricking and excess and redundancy. Right. And my, the way I know I really like a television show is when I'm just like wanting it to end. You know, that's like the 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 sign of a good TV show. So like, okay, we're done. Wow, those were two really good episodes of TV. Let's 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 <laughs> let's wrap it up, right? And I know that even last year, you and I, or you know, we we had talked about the quality control filter that this show had, the strong show running hand of a Jesse Armstrong who you know, may not be a filmmaker, but has some idea of shape that's a little more elegant than your average showrunner, American, UK, whatever else. And hoping that the show, I don't like the metaphor, the, the, the phrase of sticking the landing, more like that it would retain its shape, that it's not going to go baggy, that it's not mm-hmm. going to sag or sort of, you know, just, you know, completely kind of collapse. And this season, I was anxious at times, Right almost going against my better instincts to sort of be like, actually, there's just so much more I want to do with this world. Like, are we sure we're not rushing it now and we're going to actually lose our shape, not by ending quickly before the show can get bad, but maybe, you know, this isn't really about the story ending now. Maybe they want to avoid the writer's strike. Maybe they have offers to do something else. You know, who who knows? So as much as I was enjoying the show and trying to take it as I was coming, as was coming, I was thinking very much about that shape, and I was thinking what could really ruin the show. 
And I think one of the anxieties you, you know, you and I talked about, I don't know how Gabby felt about it, but one of the anxieties that I had was given the show's prominence and success and the standard that it set, I was worried about too big a swing, right? The, the conversation piece aspect of TV making, getting the better of the people who made it and them going too hard. But they did something interesting with that, which is they front loaded the season with the big swing. You know, they took yeah, the right. big swing, th- they took the big swing three episodes in, which the media course, the screener brigade spoiled a bit. But, you know, after that, I think it kind of, it, it, it made it harder maybe to map this show or plot it on court, like on a grid against other shows that save their big swing for the very end and made for pretty unpredictable viewing, usually feeling like we were in good hands, I think sometimes feeling the grip was slipping a bit what what do you, what, do you, what do you guys say well i mean for me raising this question in hindsight of what the shape of the story was or what we think about when we think about wrapping up a show like succession one of the things i always loved about this show and the reason that i thought it was so great and so self-evidently a classic of its era was that Jesse Armstrong never did an interview where he said, well, you know, this season is really more like a 10-hour movie. Or this is really more of like a 40-hour, you know, novel or something that we're telling. He never did that. As a, as a whole, the project was always like, we're making a TV show. We're making episodes, and over the course of a season, we are going to, yes, plot towards some destination, uh, but it's not going to be like the Shakespearean structure or whatever. It's not going to be the three-act screenplay structure or the four-act or the five-act. You know, the unit of storytelling they were about was the episode. And so trying, at the same time, as we've talked about so many times on this podcast, the essentially tragic approach that they take to the material means that people do have this expectation bound up with all these other expectations people have with TV nowadays and serialized TV of a carefully orchestrated wrap-up that diligently pays off all the themes of the show. And I think like one of the big concerns that you're kind of circling is like, is the show really equipped to, to do that with the way that it has told its story in the past when every episode has been able largely to stand on its own terms? Is it even possible to generate a kind of conclusion that wraps all of that up? Yeah, I think that's a good point, Brendan. Also, um, you mentioned that there are some topics that the show tackled throughout the years in terms of the the wider ranging harms. And, you know, we've been talking about this all season as we were like anticipating the election episode because it had been a while since we um, kind of left the the, you know, psychodrama of the Roy's and and their internecine issues and and um seen something mapped onto the real world that had you know actual repercussions for regular people and you know you said it's it's the show i don't think the show ever set out to to answer questions about that it never um never put too fine a point on any of those things and i think that's what makes it stand apart from shows that have dealt with politics um or, you know, just institutional fuckery and like it's, you know, it's not the newsroom. Um, they've they've always kind of uh, uh, let you fill in the blanks. And 
yeah, it's it's hard to think. Like, can a show like this give a satisfying answer to, you know, all those questions that it raised throughout the seasons? Um, and I'm not sure. Like, I, I, I'm not sure it can. So it, it, this might have been the only place that it, it really could have ended was just, you know, back to the siblings. And that is really what the core of the show is. But, um, yeah, I don't know. Well- well, I don't. I don't want to. I don't want to digress too far from Brendan's beautifully. You guys, your beautifully prepared structure. But you mentioned the newsroom, and it struck me that there was another show this season that 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 had a very good but short season that was kind of instructive uh, in how to watch Succession, or because I watched them parallel to each other. We don't watch a lot of TV shows, and when my wife and I really like a show, we try and watch it together and watch it properly, right? So the return of Party Down this season was interesting to me, parallel to watching Succession. And that's because, in a way, I often thought there'd be a great crossover between those shows. A newsroom Succession crossover would be brutal. A Party Down Succession crossover would be wonderful, which would be to have, you know, Ron and the Party Down crew, you know, cater a Roy event. But how many of the Succession episodes really are about dinners and receptions and gatherings and these kind of powwows or or confabs that get everybody together for that reason right it's that i mean the matson retreat is a really good example of that the bore on the floor episode you know to t- turn haven all they're all good examples where there's the travel porn aspect the luxury porn aspect but there's also the idea that these aren't characters who sit at desks and have jobs i mean mostly what they do is kind of meet at various installments to you know shore up their collateral and talk about how 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 rich they are and then occasionally there's a meeting that helps that feeling of self-containment, but also like in a comic way, the world of Party Down is hellishly recursive and Sisyphean and it goes nowhere, right? It's left to right in the sense that each episode is the length of the party that they do. And then they're always kind of right back to where they began. And I thought that while there's obviously developmental through lines and time-based through lines in this last season of Succession, they had this gimmick of things happening day after day after day, which is actually one of my little nitpicks with the show that I don't like, which we can talk about later. And Shiv's pregnancy obviously has a linear aspect and the election has a temporal aspect and building to the board meeting. I mean, time was a, a narrative tool, but right up to the end, and very much in the way the board votes and the transfer of power resolved, it's a circular show. And that idea at the end, not spelled out in big cynical letters, nothing changed, but that idea to some extent that it's an anticlimax or a non-climax, it's just another day of what these people do, was actually really a relief when I realized in the end that all that structure was basically building towards was a transfer of power that's going to mean a status quo is is maintained. Nothing's blown up, nothing collapses, nothing falls apart. Yeah. Exactly, I like, Adam. Yeah. I like that. You're you're totally right about the not taking a big swing being a, a shrewd move here. Like I maybe was struck just because like of all the hype of like series finale and I'm so invested in the show. I made a podcast about it that also, the last week's episode was so uh, like emotionally gutting for me that I was like <laughs> on edge all week about it. And I was like, oh, my God, what are they going to do to me in this episode? Um, and it was strange because while I was watching it, I was like, this is a very normal episode for the show. Like, this is just a regular 
fucking episode and I'm, I'm enjoying it. Uh, I laughed a lot. Um, I didn't have particularly strong emotional reactions, which is fine. Not every episode uh, elicits that from me. Um, I loved a lot about it, but I was, you know, on first watch, I was a little confused by the end of the episode. I was like, wait, that's it? You know, not in a way where I was like, I'm so disappointed, but I'm just kind of confused. Like, you know, and it makes so much sense to me upon reflection and rewatch and thinking about what the show is trying to tell us. But, um, you know, and I do think that was the only ending that could make sense. But, I, you know, even in this episode, which was sort of a straight callback to season one, episode six, which side are you on? One of my you know, favorite episodes of the series. I guess I was expecting maybe, uh, you know, s- some sort of emotional weight equivalent to that episode which at the time was like very gravity defying for me um but you know i i have learned not to make predictions i try and take each episode beat by beat but you know maybe there's you know something worth prodding here about the mankin stuff about um maybe some other things that we feel like uh you know were maybe a little I don't want to say unresolved. It feels alighted, perhaps. Perhaps, yes. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, the thing we're circling is, yeah, there was a little bit of frustration or dissatisfaction, I think, with this finale on my part. I think, Gabby, when you and I talked, we we expressed some of that to each other. And on the one hand, it's like, I can't really be, (laughs) I can't justifiably be mad about this on the podcast (laughs) because I explicitly wished so many times that they would do like the the sort of Sopranos style big swing and do an ending that pissed everybody off and I can't really be, you know, be mad that my knickers are the ones being twisted in this scenario. <laughs> um, but the the circular thing that we're talking about where a show like this could, I think it is true, perhaps only properly resolve itself by setting itself up for another revolution of the circuit, the closed loop system, I think very aptly gets at what nagged me about this episode. And you mentioned season one's which side are you on the boardroom coup the failed coup and there is this backdrop in that episode where it's not just that ken fails to get to the board meeting because he's misjudged because other things are happening in the world he can't get around but there is this threat of sort of like looming off-screen violence that there's said to be some sort of terrorist threat happening mm-hmm. that he can't get to and there's this it, it, it's it's not really ever explained what that is if it's a real thing if it's a false alarm but there are things happening outside their very cloistered you know cosseted worldview where he is shuttered shuttled around on helicopters and limousines from boardroom to boardroom and there is a real and very scary and precarious reality outside of that and that is the thing that has given the show i think in its best episodes that real charge that although the boardroom machinations and the circularity and the closed loop system provide great opportunity for farce and interpersonal drama of the insular sort we've described many times it always had this backdrop of describing you know in some sort of like blurry just out of focus over your shoulder way the impact that all this had on the real world and the way that this episode resolves where you know the music comes in and tom and his retinue are coming in and he's the new ceo and the gojo team is there and you can very easily imagine the thick of it style spin-off about the gojo team taking over waystar the other sitcom premises that could be spun out of this the circularity of that closed loop system was always kind of an imperfect metaphor and the thing 
that I've mentioned before, I think Jeremy Strong has mentioned this a number of times in interviews, that more accurately describes, I think, the way the show feels is like a vortex or a whirlpool, where those circles actually get smaller, those circuits get tighter, they get closer to that dark center of an oblivion. And all of a sudden, in this episode, it feels like that center is not as close as it was before, and we're just on the surface again, and this can just kind of go on forever. And I don't think that that's true, and I think that the show knows that isn't true. But perhaps it's kind of skirting those other questions about Mencken, about the very scary outside reality that these characters help to create, because it doesn't have answers, as you say, Gabby, to those questions. It can't prescribe solutions or predict what's going to come next. All it can do is tell us what happens to these characters in this particular iteration of their narrative. Well, and I've tried to think about why the thing that I was kind of you know, very pettily texting Brendan about after the episode. I tried to think about, A, whether I kept kept feeling this way, whether it was a petty grievance, whether it's one of those grievances that falls into, like, you know, you're watching the show wrong or you're being the wrong kind of fan or the wrong kind of critic, which was the Mencken, the idea that in the last episode, and it in the short term, it's in the service of a really funny joke, right? Which is when they're at Connor and Willa's townhouse that they bought from, from Marsha. And, you know, Will is like, this is going to be great. You know, Connor's going to go to Slovenia or whatever, and I'm going to be here in long distance is an exciting new phase in our relationship. And then someone's like, actually, did you see on the news that, uh, you know, Mankin might not win? And uh, that's kind of looking, that's kind of looking, looking like that's not settled. And you have the great reaction shot from her and the idea that, you know, the idea of how how sold out does your soul have to be to sort of now be cheering for incipient fascism so you don't have to live with your husband, right? I mean, it's funny. But I was bothered by that more when the episode ended, and I know we're kind of jumping around a little bit, but everyone who's listened to this has watched the episode, right? And you get Roman. Roman's the only one who's not in a whirlpool at the end. Like, to your whirlpool metaphor, there are whirlpools at the end, but they're kind of these tributaries that spill off into private whirlpools. Kendall's in a whirlpool, and but you know, he's next to water. I mean, you know, th- there's that very much that idea that he might be dragged down. You could argue that Shiv is sort of on the lip of a, of a, of a, of a, of a little vortex or a drop, too, maybe, or stasis that's not going to get her anywhere. But Roman, there's this small little possibility of grace. Now, there's ten other reasons that that's interesting having to do with the performance and the plotting of the episode and the psychology of the character. But when I leveraged that against that line early in the episode that maybe Mencken's not going to win, I was like, that's cheap. You know, they showed the most destructive manifestation of whatever's wrong with Roman. Like, I want chicken instead of steak. You know, I'm so angry and and bound and, and pent up and hormonal, and closeted, and desirous, like, however you want to analyze that character after four years, you're like, and the outcome of that was basically he backroom deal the Nazi into the the White House. Not almost, not maybe, not that's his aspiration, but, like, he did it, and that's the harm that now the entire country is stuck with. Not a drowned waiter, or some abused cruise ship staff, but, like, an entire country basically Right, every... Every season, the harm got like exponentially got, uh, wider. Yeah. 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 So that a country <laughs> kind of got roid, and you see that they're all culpable in different ways. Tom is culpable. Greg culpable. You know, uh, Kendall culpable. I mean, even Shiv, Connor. Even, yeah. Yeah. Even Connor, right? And then when they had that, I'm like, oh, 
Is that the dawning of some optimism or is that, you know, the show acknowledging how unlikely Mencken winning would be? And I thought, no, what it is, is it's a way to give Roman's ending that little bit of grace. Because that same thing with him at the bar, drinking Jerry's drink with his scars, you know, smiling a little bit and not feeling pressurized for the first time in four years. I'm trying to imagine that moment without the little aside about Jimenez probably winning the election. Mm. And I'm like, boy, it would be dark, you know, that much darker if he had that moment and still, you know, the little thing that he broke is still broken. I don't know if I'm right about that. I don't know what you guys think, but it bothered me. It didn't seem necessary. Well, we'll talk more about the way that about that particular shot, uh, because it is quite interesting and lends itself to a variety of interpretations. I have only really two thoughts about the Mencken piece there, which you sum up pretty well, my issues with it. One being that I I can only really conceive of it as a way for the show to perhaps mitigate a little bit the perceived incoherence of the political argument that that election episode made, which is a very hard thing to do to, as again, as we said on that episode many times, to satirize the U.S. political system in a dramatic comedic context in a way that's not just hack. I think there is a there is a good and sound critique of that episode to make that it lent that it assigns a little bit too much agency and importance uh, to the role of the the U.S. media. In political outcomes like they have a role but is it as decisive as that episode sort of you know makes it out to be in dramatic terms that you know that that line there is there is a little bit of a caveat is like well okay maybe this doesn't work out necessarily depending on your politics you know the point is that the roys would put this guy in power if they had the opportunity to do it if they if there was a big red button they could push they're pushing it um the other piece was just i did i just i do think it's very odd that all the context about the election is not raised at all, except for that one line, particularly, one line, yeah. part- particularly given that most of the first half of this episode revolves around Shiv and Kendall quite aggressively courting Roman and the specific context for why he's bruised and battered and in Barbados uh, licking his wounds is really not addressed at all, yes. uh, which I guess makes sense for the closed sort of like blinkered perspective of these characters and how selfish they're being with their eyes on the prize. Uh, but in an episode that was otherwise so concerned with the childhood sibling dynamics of these characters, uh, very odd note to me seemed wrong. And it was one of those things, the, the idea that he like flew home to his mom's or flew to Barbados to his mom's. And it's recent enough that like his wounds have freshly been dressed because of this compressed timeline It is perhaps the only moment in the show, these last few episodes where I have wished for a helicopter to deposit Adam McKay into the writer's room again after he'd been banned for, you know, several years to do a variation on Ron Burgundy saying that escalated quickly because the the other little nitpick I want to talk about is the timeline, which has some real value to it, right? I like the idea of working against the psychology of binging by pushing the narrative of the show more up against itself than it's ever been, where you're like, oh my God, this is just 24, 48, 72 hours, and I have to wait a week for it. I mean, it's so counterintuitive to the way people watch TV now, so I like that. But I'm also like, whether it's a proof for an actual magazine, 
how is there uh uh and i'm not like a a a plot nitpicker but like i respect this show you know like how's there a cartoon of shiv puppeteering matson like within the world of the show they met like six days ago you know like there's not time for rumors no one's being assigned that like there hasn't been a worse portrayal of how long lead journalism works since judd apatow's train wreck in terms of (sighs) of that stuff like it it and it's frustrating because, as you say, the show is like one of the only shows that has ever taken the role of the media and electoral politics as a plot point at all. Okay, like outside of people whose job it is to do that, like your daily shows, right? As satire, when people satirize presidential politics, they satirize like candidates and maybe debates in the Kennedy Nixon fashion. But like that idea of a TV show making a major plot point, like, hey, it's a little scary how basically networks call elections and call states uh, ahead of time. Whether or not it made sense, that's a big part of what the show's doing. So I respect that. I give them a certain margin for invention or error or, um, you know, Im- implausibility. But I thought the timeline, without people stopping at any point to comment in that Adam McKayish way, like at the funeral, someone sort of been like, boy, what a fucking week. Well... <laughs> You know, I did do a little bit of like sleuthing on this and 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 timeline mapping, and it it's was two weeks from Logan's birthday, so the premiere, to the funeral because the funeral, funeral was the day after election. They were both Wednesdays, um. So we can presume that Roman flew home after, well, not home, but flew to his mom's. And uh, it's been a few days, but you're right. You're right that like that political cartoon, it didn't really make sense for it to be out. They, this was another thing, like me rewatching the earlier seasons, they, um, a lot less is like happening in an episode. Um, they, yeah. they're, they really like, I understand that they needed to pack a lot into the season because it was the last one, but um, it's like a, huge world of difference watching an episode from season one to rewatching one of these um you know now i understand why we have these like we create these extensive outlines because there's so much happening all the time and sometimes some of that you feel like they're slipping it in because they have to answer a question about it but it doesn't really make sense doesn't really map onto the timeline the making stuff here for me like after it being you know so um like dramatically irrelevant to the last two episodes um yeah for them to just drop one line about it for them to just drop the one line about roman scars which was uh yeah roman says to shiv i was i was uh you know fighting some of your pals your liberal democratic pals and that's the only thing that they say about it he should have he i can't he should have just said so much for the tolerant left yeah I that was, was, I, was <laughs> I was i was i was in my head i was like that's 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 that that that's the line but, and, but anyway <laughs> yeah but i mean there's so much to talk about with roman because i found this to, his to be sort yeah. of the least satisfying for for reasons that you said but i don't know if we want to yeah let's go back let's yeah. uh well let's i think we have talked generally about our feelings about the finale in this season yeah so we want to talk about obviously the big developments i mean I've, again as you said like everybody's seen the episode nobody's tuning into this and this is the nice thing about yeah. our approach to the podcast is we're not breathlessly recording this the night after. Like, I can't believe what happened that 
on succession. It's now like with the benefit of a few days hindsight, I can now believe what happened on succession. And, uh, you know, the only thing I'll say regarding the, the magazine, uh, cartoon, Adam, is that, that they're making great strides. I don't know if you've seen with AI art these days. So, yeah, but, uh, but, I, I also just wanted to shout out someone who I'm sure is not listening to the show, but, uh, a colleague who, I, who we all respect or speaking for myself, I definitely respect. He made me laugh out loud today. Did you see Richard Brody's succession tweet? Today? Oh God, no. What do you say? It was, no, no, no. It's a, a plus tweet in all respect to Richard. Someone was making a joke about how few people, relatively speaking, watch the succession finale. And that's a whole sub discussion that's been interesting since things like the Sopranos of like the cultural weight these things hold, but it's the coastal elite watching and, you know, more people watch Young Sheldon and 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 all that, but like that, even with time shifting and de and and recording and stuff, I think it was like, you know, two and a half, three million people watched the Succession finale, and Richard tweeted, "Yes, but all of them ended up writing about it," as a sort of joke of of a joke of the like a, a Sex Pistols gig joke. I thought was really funny. Yeah, you know, only two point eight million people watched it, but they all wrote about it. Yeah, I in thought some, it was good. In some way, and, shape, or form. Yes. And they only watched because they didn't get screeners. Um, yeah. <laughs> so, so, so we should talk about that, I guess, climactic fight between the siblings, the way that this plot resolves itself, this long-delayed board vote over who's going to be the successor, are they going to sell to Gojo, ends up hinging on this alliance between the siblings hashed out in Barbados to present Ken as the sole candidate for CEO, with Roman and Shiv's vote secured as part of his voting block, he has a margin of one vote and they can kill the deal. Uh, but Shiv chooses to blow it up for somewhat obscure reasons. And I think this scene is a good place to begin to talk about you know, what's perverse and frustrating in the finale. And as... As we've been discussing a little bit, I think the most perverse thing about this scene for me, talking specifically about this blow-up fight between the siblings, is that it takes the tragic arc of the season and kind of subverts it. Um, there are a lot of configurations they could have gone with at the end of the season. We've talked many times about the theory a lot of viewers had that the show is building towards the quote-unquote Godfather 2 ending for Kendall, where he ends up on top but alone, isolated, and hollowed out. Um, but the show more in keeping with its farcical roots, you know, it has Kendall hollow himself out and then he loses everything anyway. Uh, again, for somewhat obscure reasons that Shiv never properly explains. And the thing that was so electrifying to me about this scene, which I kind of couldn't believe as I was seeing it, not that Ken, not the specific plot stuff that Shiv was betraying Kendall, this seemed of course very appropriate, but the way this unfolded, the way that Kendall, as of course he must, completely melt down in the face of his professional and personal oblivion happening to him, denying the tragedy that has been at the center of his story for the past two seasons, this, that he's so far gone, he can deny that the accident that he had confessed to his siblings in the season three finale even happened, and also that the, sh that the scene, the way that incredibly tonally calibrated way that My Mark Mylod directs the scene and that these performances are pitched that this plays once as both a completely shocking betrayal and also just an unbelievably funny farce like I couldn't stop laughing even as I couldn't believe what I was seeing and I'm still kind of sorting through how I feel about that because 
that was the thing that felt to me like it was it was frustrating of the viewers' expectations in a good way, I think, because it is completely true to this ethos that the show has that the saddest thing that can happen to a character is also sometimes the funniest, and that's the idea that they try to go for. And Kendall finding a way to completely debase himself and hollow out what was left of his soul in this super farcical way is incredibly true to that spirit and it, it also just very unsettling for our expectations of what we were looking for in terms of the payoff. You know, we're trying to talk, I mean, it's funny, like we talk about this as narrative, and then when you talk about it as narrative, you kind of get so inside the narrative, you're like, these people would would or wouldn't do that, which is both a good way to analyze drama, because when characters are that well drawn and you're inside a narrative, you know, plausibility and psychology are part of the pleasure of it. But then there's also, you know, these as, as, as we've read a zillion variations on in the last few days, that they're not real, they're not our friends, they go away when the show is over, all, all that, we know that. But to just do like a little formal criticism or formal appreciation, the open concept of the Waystar offices has never been better used. Yeah, right? yeah, for sure. This, this idea yeah. of these totally transparent partitions is what made it screamingly funny. And if you looked at the way it's staged around the edges, what's funny is not that people are overreacting and freaking out, watching the Roys literally punching and clawing and gouging each other, but that people are just kind of standing there saying nothing, because these are actually the most powerful people in the building at that moment. They they are the most even though their power is now shattered by the fact that they're at each other's throats, right? They're really, really powerful and they're going to remain powerful after the Gojo sale in the sense that they're all going to be like billion, billion, billionaires. The fact that the same dynamics of the kitchen, the making the smoothie and the being little kids got transferred to that transparent glass walled room, except instead of getting together, they're fighting, which is exactly how siblings are. You know, the intimacy bleeds into fractiousness almost instantly. I found that so funny, even just regardless of the plot particulars, that there's this board meeting of relative adults down the hall, and they can all see two offices over through the glass, the fight occurring. It's That's very funny, too, to see them, like, is, some of them get up immediately from the table, like Stewie and yeah. uh, one of the old guys from the, from this, uh, which side are you on, who they Paul brought back. Paul or Dewey, like, yeah. They kind of like get up immediately and they're like, they're like looking through the glass while some, some of them are like still just sitting down. But yeah, those, those, those cuts back to the, and it's just, it's so strange. Like with all the glass, you know, like you're not uh, the reflections and stuff. Um, it, it's hard to get like a full grasp on, on how much is visible, but I, I mean, I think, or, or hearable, but I think yeah. pretty much, I mean, it, they were basically doing that in public and. They yeah. they do a lot of uh I mean they do a lot of their squabbling in public they don't you know regard other people in the room but yeah I mean just <laughs> just I the, thought it was I so thought, humiliating I, I, yes I thought that idea that they're so powerful they're so inadequate yeah. to these tasks 
And I thought that, you know, all the violence in it, because it really is quite violent. I mean, there's there's potential violence towards Shiv, who at that point, at least within those characters' knowledge, is pregnant. There's, mm-hmm. you know, you know the, the opening up of, um, of Roman Scar, which is technically the scene before, but it's very much in play because he's all gaping and... Right. And 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 bloody the entire time, and the violence that you see Ken wants to do to him after the insinuation that his kids are not full bloodline or whatever. Uh, it's like really intense, and not that stuff's not played for comedy. But in the context of the moment, even the brutality of it is sort of like it's hilarious. It is, yeah, yeah. And I mean, I want to make sure that we give proper appreciation in his final episode that he directed for the show to executive producer and director Mark Mylod who's been so key to this series, but that approach that you're talking about, Adam, of not just like the open plan office, but the fact that like on set, like they actually keep those actors in that other room the whole yeah, time, the whole time, the whole so time. So they can react. Cause as you say, they're getting up and they're looking over cause they're watching the show too, in a way, but yeah. it also lends itself to this thing where I, I heard this in both as a, an improvisation of strongs and an idea that my lot threw out to him that strong just got up during that scene and walked back into the boardroom and Peter Friedman as Frank had to react to him in that moment, trying to spin the vote back again, which by the way was my hardest laugh of the episode when he's sitting there completely devastated. And then he gets up all disheveled and is just like, well, let, let's, let's hit Frank. Let's let's, we, there's, there's, the there's still, there's yeah. still something here, you know, it's still just, yeah. on, just on autopilot trying to find a deal. Um, yeah. But, but, but I mean, as to that scene and talking about, you know, all the different things in play and you say what seems just like that wild, messy, not arbitrary, but sort of that mysterious impulse for Shiv. I mean, the the Monday morning quarterbacking, literally the Monday morning, right. yeah. you know, screen capping breakdown is a lot of people, not wrongly. I'm not someone who thinks that like, you know, there's a huge against the grain reading to this. You know, the two things I've seen floated that I think make sense are that she literally could not deal with him spinning around in the chair, putting his feet up, that as childish as that initial impulse is, it's rooted in a real sense of, yes. you know, like, he, like, this dude sucks, and, you know, <laughs> you know, kitchen, kitchen smoothie rituals are actually not legally binding in the light of day. So, so, so there's that. But I also think... And it's not that it's gone uncommented upon. I just think it's very uncomfortable. So talking about it is is not top of people's list. But I think this implicit suggestion, which had been planted in the show for a long time, that Kendall's kids, his parenthood, his family, which is the only, he's the only one of the three who has it, and he lords it over them, right? That he's a dad, that he's closer to their dad than they are because he's a parent. You know, like Ro- Roman clearly is not the paternal type. And, you know, Shiv's pregnancy is, you know, ambiguous enough that they, the show didn't even know she was going to be pregnant until Sarah, you know, Snook, Snook was pregnant. So I thought that the potential illegitimacy of Kendall's kids and that as a, as a rhetorical reason to deny him is pretty brutal. But yeah. there within the show, that's not a fan theory. That's the dialogue of the scene because Roman picks up on it, right? Roman's like, well, you know, dad didn't think that that, that they were real or he didn't consider, you know, and they're, they're talking around it in a way that's very suggestive that in some ways this is Shiv not leveraging her pregnancy as the reason to be CEO, but she's like, well. Right. Well, and know. it's it's actually after the 
Kendall's ridiculous denial of the waiter thing saying that, you know, it was a false memory and he just said it. Like, I mean, that he could how could he botch that any worse? I think that was when Roman kind of turned. Yeah, because um, that's when he goes, absolutely it, not. Yeah. It's like, what the fuck, dude? That and that's when they start talking about you know, Kendall makes some comment about like the future, and then Roman says, Well, you know, if you really want to get down to talking about but, the, bl- yeah. the the bloodline, it's you know, it's Shiv, and then he's like, What are you But but about? I mean but I maintain that the waiter is something Shiv came up with like fourth. Oh yeah, like oh, she yeah. got she got there. It's I, I but that I that I th- wasn't it. Though. I think a huge part of this scene, and I heard a, just reading interviews, a billion interviews published this week, too many for me to read, with like Mylod and Strong. Everybody, they had a lot of conversations about how much they should seed in there as like psych potential psychological triggers for Shiv's decision. Meaning, I think that in the original script, it was even more mysterious why she hits mm-hmm. that wall. Like, it's extremely legible, I think, on a thematic level. And this is one of the things that... uh, This is potentially one of the things that irked me about the show, is that, as you say, Adam, the reasoning can be, under a perfectly understandable reading, boiled down to, well, fuck this guy, right? Like, fuck him. Fuck Ken. He sucks. And if you're the kind of person who has engaged with the show at that level, like the critics and viewers who Gabby and I talk about all the time, is I think... Hold, hold themselves back from fully engaging with the show because they're afraid of this problem of identification or sympathy with these characters, you know, that's a pretty good, like, get-out-of-jail-free card if that ends up being the narrative fulcrum of the entire series is, well, fuck this guy. Um, right. the, the other thing that I like is a more compelling reason for that, and it's not one that's, like, super supported in the text of the episode, but one that I think you can identify through the whole series is we talked, I have talked a bunch about wanting Shiv at some point in this show to have some tragic moment of recognition where she actually, even if just in the flash, has some introspection or understanding of her own flaws because she's a character who keeps things pretty locked down all the time. And as much as like her surface is cracked throughout this season, in that final shot, you get the sense that she's going to keep things pretty locked down for the rest of her life. But I think there is a valid reading that this season has circled so much the parallels between Kendall and Shiv, that, that they are the two siblings who really wanted it the most, who really identified so much with the idea of getting this position in a way that Roman didn't quite. Roman kind of wanted it for different reasons. He wanted different things out of his connection to the company. And the idea that Shiv is thinking also of Kendall's betrayal of her in the election episode, if she's thinking of that destructive impulse, I think you can definitely read this as it just in a flash in a way that she doesn't quite understand. She sees herself in Ken and the stuff that she doesn't like about herself and won't look at about herself and rejects it. Um, I, I find that a more dramatically compelling reading, even if it's not, again, super explicitly spelled out. But yeah, it, I mean, it flatters she, my own interpretation, it, so I'm going to run with it. It makes sense. I mean, she was literally nauseated by his megalomania and his just, like, breathless desperation for this job. And maybe, yeah, maybe she does see some of herself in that and that, like, this is fucking pathetic, you know? Um, and, yeah, I, I don't think Shiv knew exactly what she was going to do. And, and a lot was riding on instinct. There was, you know... There were some indications like earlier, you know, Sarah Snoop does such good acting with with her with her expressions, Um, you know, like when Ken puts his legs on the table and Stewie's like, you know, team Ken, baby. And you know, we know 
that Shiv like hates Stewie and she you know she's thinking about the boys club stuff like I think back to honeymoon states when she she yells at Ravenhead and Stewie when they're like uh you know being fratish and then she she has that fall um but yeah you know so so, so you you can see that she's wobbling a, a little bit but um I also think that you know it was completely about Kendall being able to unable to get out of his own way. I think if she, they had left the room, like she said, can you guys just give me a minute? And I think maybe if they had just left or if they had just left Roman in there, um, you know, I don't think she was a hundred percent sold on her decision yet. Right. But it was when Kendall becomes hysterical, aggressive, threatens to literally kill himself, um, that it becomes clear that like, you know, this isn't going to work. And, and so I think her decision hinged on, 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 you know, Kendall's hysteria in that moment, but there was, you know, other things at play in her consciousness, you know, the, the sale is what Logan really wanted. Like you said, Brendan, all the betrayals from the past, you know, we, we, we have the election. You think back to like the, um, the memo that Shiv dropped in season three, like these two are always hurting each other and always making up. Um, so yeah, I mean, there's something interesting to your point that that she she sees some of herself in him and his his uh, blind ambition. And I, I really don't think that it had anything to do with Tom. You know, some people say, like, well, she wanted to be close to power because of her husband. If anything, I think Tom being the winner was a, would be a deterrent for her and would make her go the other way. Um, yeah. And I also don't buy that it was to like to free her brothers from the cage, even if that's technically what happened. But, you know, I don't, I also don't deny that the notion could have been floating around in her subconscious, you know, like there's, there's a lot of, well, there's, there's a, a lot. Load, yeah. There, go ahead. There's, there's a load bearing line there that I think people can, if they want, they can put a lot of weight on the line where she says, I love you. I really do, but I can't stomach you. And yeah. one of your, one of your previous guests, and uh, while we're doing power rankings, the author of my favorite post uh, post uh, post game piece so far, Vikram Murthy, who came in, uh, wrote wrote that piece of the Nation today. He tweeted at the time that both parts of that line are really important, right? They're equally important. And now I don't think that this was like a savior hail mary where it's like, oh God, Kendall's soul, you know, I got to get him out of the chair. And if it was, that that's really funny because that's not going to save his soul. I right. believe that. Uh, you know, it's going to be a short, a long walk off a short pier for him, literally or figuratively speaking, beyond the world of the show. Not that that world matters, right? But I do think that the fact that she prefaces it by saying "I love you" isn't just plausible deniability or an excuse. It's a complicated thing to express because I think that scene in the kitchen, and whether you know, it's the last thing they actually filmed. And, you know, for all the little petty bickering within the cast and this kind of faction between Culkin and Strong, which is never like a full-on feud, but this idea of, like, you know, acting versus being and all that. I mean, it's clear. You know, these people love each other. I mean, these actors love each other. or They're capable of showing how much they love each other while wearing these masks of these characters, right? Mm -hmm. So, you know, I thought that Shiv's line there was... Important, even if it makes her decision seem all the more impulsive or messy, because you know if she loves him, <laughs> if she doesn't want him to, right. you know, kill himself or threaten to kill himself, she probably, probably shouldn't do that. So I find that line, while I don't follow it all the way to the conclusion of this was a heroic act or a selfless act, or she's really doing it for Kendall's own good, I think the fact that she expresses it isn't just a trick. It's not just a tactic. I think she means it. And in some way, she thinks she's doing this out of love. Yeah. Right? 
Yeah, I mean, people have been pretty, I mean, people have been hard on Shiv throughout the series, and obviously after this, you know, um, there's just been some horrible things said about her. Um, you know, not to, like, <laughs> um, you know, ex exonerate her from, from things that she's done or say that she's, you know, a, an actualized person, but, um, you know, you, you get glimpses of her also uh, that this is out of concern, like, when... Rome brings up the kids being a pair of randos. She kind of like, you know, she says to him, Rome, you know, which is something that yeah. <laughs> Kendall and, and Shiv often have to do with Roman, kind of talk him down Rome when he starts to like, you know, uh, get a little too testy. Um, I don't think she, you know, I, I think this was such a hard decision for her because she loves him so much and she loves her sibling so much. And that was, you know, if we think back to their, um, you know, Bahamas scenes, I think there was something so intoxicating about the lack of conflict once once they decided just to give it to Ken. Like, everybody was just at peace. Like, you know, they, they went and swam out to him and made the little joke, and they were like, you know, you can just have it. Shiv, Shiv says on the beach to Rome when they're making that decision, she's like, I'm tired, I want to go to sleep, you know. Um, so, yeah, I, I think... You know, it's it must have been very, very painful to go from like having that sweet little childlike scene where they're, you know, making fun of their stepdad and doing this meal fit for a king thing, which is, you know, obviously something they've done before as kids and, um, you know, with their mom and, and you know, their mom is is uh, is probably the nicest that we've ever seen Caroline to her children. Um, it was I thought maybe they spent like three to five minutes too long in the Bahamas, but um I yeah, wanted to hear. I, I want. I wanted to hear more of that guy's pitch. That okay. guy really. That guy really seemed on to his something. Friend, his, his, his Jonathan. Friend, his friend Jonathan. He's just been going through some shitty stuff lately, and he's he's here from Monaco, and he has to watch his days. Uh, so he has to watch. Yeah, he has to watch his days. That was great. Uh, yeah. But what I was, the, the, I was just gonna sorry, Brendan, go ahead. I was just, uh, there was one other thing I was gonna say about the scene about Roman, but you can you can if you want to bring it up, you can. Well, I was just gonna say that I I I know we want to move on and talk about the Barbados section too. Uh, I, I was just going to say that, like, Gabby, you're talking about, you, you're both talking about the euphoria of that scene of them in the kitchen, and also the real release that these characters feel, I think, of, like, letting go of this conflict a bit. Like, there is a real sort of excitement there to it. But I was also rewatching this past weekend, the only ep episode that I, like, rewatched before the finale was The Munsters, the season premiere, which is not one of my favorite episodes of the series, but it's a very enjoyable one. And remembering that thread in that whole episode, that whole episode being this sort of like layered sort of farce about people just saying numbers to each other and the sort of like false sitcom conflict that Logan feels trapped in and the sense that maybe at the end of his life, he's looking for something real. He's looking for conflict to become real. And that is kind of what Shiv does for them. She actually makes this real. Like Kendall getting this, he would still be playing at CEO. They would still yes. be doing the made up numbers. Uh, but even just for those like five minutes where she blows it all up, it becomes suddenly frighteningly, exhilaratingly real for all real. of them. It erupts into actual physical violence. It completely transforms their relationships. Like the, like Kendall actually pressing his thumbs into Roman's eyes, oh, actually bye. attacking his brother who th so often throughout the series, he has been in this instinctive yeah. protector role of. It completely, it's not just like another, like, ah, Kendall is like Logan, don't you see? It completely subverts and perverts and transforms the way they relate to each other. It, it is a completely new frontier 
and yeah. it's also triggered by some truth being spilled about Kendall's kids. And as we've seen before with this family, whenever actual truth gets spilled, they can't really handle it. It doesn't last very long. But it does totally transform the show, and it's not a coincidence that it ends about five minutes later. So let me ask you guys then, because we talked at the beginning about the lack of the big swing. So let's talk about the closest they come to a big swing, or if not the big swing, the closest they come to the the epigrammatic flourish or the the let's sum it up, you know. Mm-hmm. The closest the episode comes to a big swing, it's not a plot point, it's a speech, and it's both the speech, which is not articulate like the eulogies, like Ewan's eulogy. It's kind of in lieu of him not speaking at the funeral, I think, is Roman getting the button on the series. That whole thing of we're nothing, we're bullshit, it doesn't matter. Yeah. Which I thought was part of giving that character this idea of grace and clarity. It's actually not out of character because he really is quite nihilistic. Yeah. But finally, the nihilism doesn't seem like a joke and it doesn't seem even like an accusation. It seems like a moment of true clarity born out of how just dumb they all look. And I thought that giving that to to Roman, who didn't speak at the funeral and, you know, who has all these little tricks that obviously fail him, like this idea of pre-grieving and all that, which is a very funny runner throughout the season. You know, I've pre-grieved, I've pre-grieved, and then at every opportunity, that's not enough. I thought that that speech was the show's biggish swing of let's sum it up in a in a bit of dialogue, right? And I wonder how you guys felt it worked because I'm still of the mind that everything they did with Roman having this release of not caring enough to be CEO, not really wanting it, sublimating himself to his brother during that first brutal scene with the hug, right? Where I believe him getting the stitches ripped open, that's more Roman's masochism than Kendall trying to hurt him. When Kendall's clawing his eyes out, that's different. Yeah. The hug I thought was really Roman being like, I'm a masochistic little baby and it feels good. That's him missing his dad and kind of missing the abuse, I think. Um, But then that speech, I'm like, do we believe it? Is it a good way of summing the show up? Am I overreading it as a summation of the show? Because he's the only one who says it, even if they all think it. Yeah. And you notice that they don't contradict him. Right? They don't contradict him. They're not like, actually, we're something. They're, he, they move on. I mean, that's when Kendall tries to go back into the room and get, you know, Frank, Frank on side. I thought that that's the closest the show comes to a thesis statement. And I wonder if you guys saw it that way or what you think of it. Because it's brilliantly acted. I mean, like, we're not giving awards. We don't do, I know you guys don't do power rankings on this podcast and all that. But, like, give Kieran Culkin his flowers as an actor, man. I mean, yeah. he... He's, he was the greatest this season, I thought, on the show. Yeah, I mean, I found that speech, that little flourish rhetorically, to be completely in keeping with where his character has been this season. I'm not sure that I totally think that it is the show's point of view, necessarily that they're bullshit, because historically the show has taken these characters and their psychologies and the sort of struggle for their souls as futile as it might be quite seriously. Um, They're bullshit in the context of they're not worthy of taking the position and they're ineffective in that moment. What I saw that more as was Kendall realizing that he hadn't actually 
you know, broken his brother's will in the way that he wanted to, to be able to control him. What he had done was he had just, he had just temporarily synced up with that nihilism, and it was briefly advantageous to him. But Roman's actually pretty checked out by this point, and they, they, they actually don't have a way of relating to each other anymore. Should we talk about the fact that it ends up being Tom on top? We're about an hour into this. Yeah. Thing. We should talk about the fact that it, that it ends up being Tom, which it's it's very funny that like we've so studiously avoided doing predictions on the show. I think last week was the first time that we even idly threw out the possibility. Oh, what if it, it does end up being Tom? That could be kind of interesting because Tom kind of makes sense in that chair for the same reason that people, you know, seriously or not thought that Greg was going to make it. The idea that you just promote whoever the biggest ass kiss is, right? Whoever the biggest suck up is. And I thought a little bit about when I read Disney War, the James B. Stewart book that Armstrong references <laughs> often, uh, the way in that book, Bob Iger is kind of depicted as a bit of a Wamsgans, as a bit of an arch sycophant who is like furiously treading water to stay afloat until he can be appointed uh, by being the right man at the right time. You know, they say that Tom gets the job because he's well-liked, which I'm not sure is, is totally true, except in a kind of sarcastic way. Uh, but, I mean, Tom being the person who survives at the end, I think is very true to what his character has been the entire series. And it's also true to the rather cynical view this series has on the actual import of this role itself. Like, if you divorce it from the incredible, like, universally... Uh, momentous psychic significance that the Roy kids assign to it. Um, right. This is really just somebody who's going to take orders from the board and from corporate interests yeah. and from the Nazi president. And yeah, sure, right. it might as well be Tom. Yeah, I mean, I think it's very funny how, like, well, of course, like this show has been. Some people watch it for you know the horse race factor, and 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 that kind of got ramped up in the discourse towards the end. Um, but we, you know, we knew that nobody was ever actually going to be a, a, a winner. And I think it's funny <laughs> how people talk about, you know, like, this is Tom's huge win. Um, and even McFadden himself was like, I'm not really sure what people are talking about when they say this was a win. This is just another move in a corporate nightmare, which is true. Like, I, I, but I think I think it speaks to something that's been that was threaded throughout the series from the pilot, which, you know, Logan talking about, you know, this, this tension between new world, old world, just are the Logan tactics of, of uh, kind of like bulldozing your way through and running on instinct. Uh, is that relevant? Is that necessary anymore in this sort of late stage capitalism era that we're in? And, you know, I think it's interesting because, um, for the for the Roy kids, you know, we've talked about how they talk about these roles. Um, you know, they use words like like fiefdoms and crowns, and um, it's so you know, it's for them, it's it's uh, you know, this it's sort of like wrought as this like childhood fantasy, but in reality, like this is just this is just you know, dry office corporatism, and like it makes sense that the empty servile suit won because that's what's most useful to like the churn of capitalism today. 
um, you know, the idea of like family capitalism and legacies. Um, it's romantic, but it's it's a non-starter if you can't hack it. You know, like that's just not the way that it's going to be today. Everything is about KPIs, deliverables, who's going to put their head down and take the most shit. And that has been Tom throughout the entire series. You know, you think about the yeah. sin cake eater from season one, um, the pain sponge, the way that he talks to Matson in this episode about how his hang style is that he has a lot of tolerance for pain and he's constantly vigilant and worried about threats to his body it's so weird Fam and then f famously swallowed his own cum swallowed his own cum and you think about decisions that he's made like you know in the pilot logan gets mad at kendall because he doesn't stay at the offices to finish the Volter deal he comes for the birthday because this is family yeah. ca family capitalism but you think about tom like tom didn't go to connor's wedding he he because he wanted to, you know, he stay with Logan to go to Sweden. He was stay, be on the plane. He didn't go to Logan's funeral because he was at work. Um, I think Matson, you know, he 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 kind of saw that. Um, and you know, today it's sort of more this professional managerial capitalism that that Tom embodies that he's willing to just take shit. Um, you know, it's part of the tension in the marriage with Shiv, and um. Yeah, you know, it's like Tom ended up kind of where he started, but with a fancier title and he's going to have, uh, you know, sort of another iteration, more modern iteration of Logan and Matson kind of just um, beating up on him. And so well, know, everything, it's, it's very funny. Everything you yeah. say is very apt, Gabby. The one thing you left out is that Tom has also historically been depicted as being very fond of layoffs and cost cutting. Which is another thing that somebody yes, in this position... Yes, the, effic the efficiency thing, too, of yeah, course. Is, somebody in this position... And that's the way that he pitches to Matson that he doesn't care. Yeah, he just... It's squeezing squeezing the fat, getting rid of it. Like, he's so ruthless about that. Yes. Well, it's, a, it's, a, it, it's a testament to the show's impiety. And, you know, when I think of Jesse Armstrong, there's all sorts of things that he... That, 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 that as a satirist, I think, serve him well. And one is a real lack of, of sentimentality and piety for the most part. Tom and Greg, and I'm not talking about them as a couple, that's like a, you know, a, 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 that's played out, but they are potentially on another version of this show, even a good version of this show with all the same actors and same casting and the same style and the same pedigree. They are outsiders who could be used to flatter the audience. And they made their mind up pretty early that that was not going to be the case they never did anything as cynical as saying actually they're just like the roys they're not like the roys greg's not like his family for reasons of how he actually was brought up he wants to be like them performing and trying to be more like them isn't the same as being like them at their core he doesn't have that sense of entitlement he kind of has to like grow and devolve into it i guess mm. tom's not like them but that doesn't make him preferable or superior or or rootable and you know brendan and i think one of the first ways we bonded over the show not to mean bonded as people we knew each other before this but we were texting about succession as a show we really liked and brendan wrote his excellent piece about show for for cinemascope way back in season one before everyone was writing think pieces you know brendan took the show pretty seriously in a film magazine but that the the tom character beyond being brilliantly acted and funny and this weird way of talking and the dialogue that they that they gave him that this was a character who they were using to <laughs> they, they 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 were using him to be just as rotten 
and obnoxious and sociopathic as everybody else. They were not going to let him be a tragic hero. This was not right. going to be someone who's redeemed by his love for Shiv. And, you know, uh, eventually we're going to be rooting for her to want him and all that. That all the ways that he's kind of like hurt and betrayed by her are not endearing or sympathetic at all. Right. And 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 in that sense, it's the right ending for him. Because he's not a great villain. He's not some compelling force of nature, but he's also not a tragic hero or a kind of stealth protagonist. He's also a guy who sucks. Yeah. And uh, and he kind know. of admitted this season that he sucks, right? Like, he finally copped to the fact that it's like, it's been about the money. It's always been about the money. I want to yeah. have nice things. Like, yeah. that's that's it. Well, the other piece yeah. I thought of about bring it back to the idea of Tom being depicted as doing a lot of layoffs and cost cutting. They have underlined that going all the way back to season two. That was the thing he was focused on when he came into ATN. And it's something he has in common with Logan, who's quite miserly uh, when it comes to his budgets and talking about, you know, what's the AC bill at ATN and things like that. (laughs) There's a nice counterpoint in this episode where Kendall says to his siblings in Barbados that they have to go into the boardroom with their vision of the future and present actually something positive. Here's what we see this company doing. And the person who wins the company is someone whose MO is entirely negative. What can I take away? What can I hone this down to? How can I streamline this? And 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 that is very true to the reality the show's depicting. And for the kids, it's it's all about Logan, because this is what Logan, you know, beat into them, that, that that it's about family and family is it's not about love and it's not about compassion and it's not about uh, dignity it's about uh it's about the company and so you know the way that the kids sort of uh romanticize it when it's just you know again it's it's just like these you know naming numbers and boardroom deals um but tom you know he doesn't have that that baggage um and that's why it works. And it's um, it's not particularly ambitious in terms of wanting to come up with his own uh, ideas. You know, he just uh, he's he's a cost cutter and, and he's all about efficiency. And it's interesting because, um, you know, in that conversation he has with Matson, um, and Matson says, you know, that he wants to sleep with Shiv and he feels like Shiv would sleep with him, too. Um I mean, that I saw is, I think he does, but I also saw that as sort of a test. Like, is this guy going to get in my face when I say I want to fuck his wife? Um, And he doesn't, obviously. He's like, we're men. This is fine. Um, But also, like, the misogyny of that statement by Matson, where he's like, well, I want to sleep with her, and so that doesn't really make her a good choice. And also, she has too many ideas, and I don't need somebody with ideas. You know, and that's kind of the problem with with Kendall and Shiv, and you saw it a little bit in the beginning yes. of of uh, the you know in the Barbados scene when there's before they decide to come together, and it's sort of like Kendall versus Shiv, and um, you know Shiv suggested that Kendall and Rome go back to the hundred when she's CEO again. Like her arrogance sort of matched Kendall's a little bit here, and maybe that's you know what you were talking about, Brenda, that she saw a little bit of herself. In Kendall's meltdown because you know she said some obnoxious things to Ken and Rome in the beginning of that episode about um you know she said well this was actually a good point she said dad died and you two grabbed the crown and pushed me out so I don't know why I'm the cunt here sorry for winning which also reminded me back of too much birthday when Roman was on top and he's like you guys just don't want to see me win you know none of them can get too close to it without the others 
feeling jealous and and all of these emotions that coming to the fore and so yeah that's a huge um, that's a huge yeah. liability in the in the corporate context obviously that was the that was always the reason why it wouldn't do to give the job to someone like Kendall or Shiv, aside from any right. other issues of their qualifications. You don't want somebody who assigns so much psychic importance to being in that seat. Exactly. You know, exactly. someone like Tom who just wants to be comfortable and will take yeah. orders. Another detail, I'm not sure how many people picked up on this, but I thought this was very amusing and very subtle. The way that the show sort of doles out this information to you about who's going to be where at the company. Tom says at the end, he implies that he's going to get let go of Hugo in favor of Carolina. He wants to keep Jerry aboard. He wants to let go of Carl and Frank. It's like very quick, rapid fire. Here's what happens to these yeah. characters. It's like, that's interesting. It's also exactly what Matson put on his kill list in episode five. So mm. these aren't even Tom's ideas. He's already taking yeah. orders. And I, I think that with Matson, who I know you guys have talked about a lot, because he's such an active character on the show and you guys have given Skarsgård his flowers on the, the the podcast and all that but I was thinking about how in episode 9 I think you guys talked about this they did something really fascinating with him when, when he was sucking up to Menken at the party right he adopted a really interesting posture he's like I'm just the tech guy right mm -hmm. like I have no idea you know we just you, what's the line from the empty man? You 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 broadcast. We trans. You, we you transmit. We receive. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That yeah. that after that after kind of showing himself to be this bear like warlike Viking like personality to all the Roys, like as a way of trying to seduce Shiv and trying to intimidate, you know, Kendall and and Roman to say nothing of Tom earlier on. You know, he's like mean and and nasty and making jokes and these like you know like, like homophobic slash homoerotic jabs at everybody that in the presence of real power he just totally reverts to like i'm a tech guy i don't know what i want yeah. you 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 tell me and i thought that you know with him in charge in charge i don't think he's a visionary like logan is no I mean, his I, his pitch on AT on like what did he say IKEA to fuck you know back in the uh yeah. in the Sweden episode, um yeah he doesn't he doesn't have any regard for this business the way that Logan did and the way that Logan forced his kids to, um so yeah I, I mean <laughs> I think the idea that he's going to strip it for parts. And this is probably not going to spawn another 30-year legacy of, you know, right. a, Ma a Matson control. I mean, that's the thing is it's not just business as usual. It feels like an accelerating cycle. Like, I don't, I, I don't think the company as presently constituted it would be recognizable within five years right. of the timeline of this show, which is whether that's meant as a tragedy when you leverage it against the mausoleum and aspect of the eulogies. I mean, I'm, right. again, I'm so moved by that part of Ewan's eulogy where he says you know bent the corners of the world you know to to, to yeah. some extent he's saying it in a negative way but it's kind of and i'm not trying to be pretentious but it's also kind of a eulogy for the 20th century there. yes yeah right there are the no more logan roy's yeah yeah well and and you know he's not missed right but, <laughs> but people do get pretty used to the way certain things get yeah done and i always thought the fact that the kids are caught in a way, between that tradition that shaped and grew them up. And then Kendall is the most obvious example of someone who wants to push out of that with all mm -hmm. his stupid millennial <laughs> signifiers of everything. Right. And all his trend hopping and stupid mm -hmm. taste and everything was always really... 
really one of the best managed satirical parts of the show. I mean, all of his accoutrements and his pet causes and the language that he sort of adopted and dropped during last season's kind of, you know, woke Kendall phase. That is some of the most enduringly funny stuff on the show. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. I mean, just the the idea. Sorry, go ahead. Anthropologically speaking, you know, that's the stuff that you, you can go back and it's like, you want to talk about this as a show about the era? That's the stuff that they got so well. Yeah. So just perfect. Anyway, I a little off topic. But. No, no. I mean, it's just, it's so silly that Kendall thought that he could bring that to Waystar in the 21st century and make it work. Um, yeah. Vibey New Banner. I know Brendan's favorite. Vibey. <laughs> Same old with the Vibey New Banner. Yeah. There's a, yeah. there's a thing I thought of. I, I bring this up almost specifically because I know it's going to annoy Adam. Um, but, uh, I don't know if you ever read the, uh, the book, uh, the Bill Carter book about the, the Conan Leno Tonight Show fracas, but there's a bit in that at the very end, a moment of real clarity from, of all people, Jerry Seinfeld, where he talks about the, his, just his bewilderment at the dispute over, you know, these shows, like their sacred institutions. And he says something like, they're not, it's not an institution. It's a guy doing a show. And when, you know, when Dave is done, somebody else is going to do something. You're not going to become Dave. You know, you don't take that over. Like, whoever takes over Waystar, you don't get to be Logan. It doesn't make you Logan. It's another guy doing his thing. And there's just nobody waiting in the wings who has that same force of personality uh, or dark vision. Yeah, and I mean, that's why I think him dying early in the season was smart, because it gives you enough time to see the gravitas missing, right? Mm-hmm. Instead of having some big speech about how the gravitas is missing, and I think that that scene, it's somewhere in the show outline, so as we desperately, you know, grasp right, we should mention it, because it's a wonderful sequence, is the family meeting with his real family. Yes, yeah, oh yeah, that's that's one of the things we, we need to hit, so we can talk, you're talking about the video scene. The video. Yeah, um, that... that... Which, is, which is extraordinary, I thought. Yeah, and uh, in the in the particulars of the way that they got to that scene, again from an, a couple interviews with Mylod, he said that they, because they had to shoot on that set at a certain time, that video was filmed like an hour before the actors watched it in the scene that oh, we yeah. saw. Yeah, that. Um, and they, I mean, the emotional immediacy of that is something of them like barely having time to turn it around and it being so fresh. And it's just such an unexpected moment where you wonder, like, there were moments in this episode where I wondered if the sentimentality of this great project ending had gotten away from them a little bit, which might be more relevant when we talk a little bit more about the Barbados section. Um, and the, the, the incredibly unexpected tenor of that scene of just seeing Logan in such a tender mood, of seeing him so relaxed around these people with whom he's been engaged in such you know, profane farce and high temper in the past is so jarring. Um, but it, it, and it, 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 that, that loveliness is so double-edged and bittersweet because of course the import of it is that this is something the kids didn't have access to and why didn't they have access to it? And it, and I, I, I think what's really great about it is it puts you in that position of asking as the characters are surely asking themselves, why didn't I get to see this? Why wasn't I here for this? 
And it's that thing of the almost of like the abused child, right? Where it's like, what's wrong with me that this is happening to me? What's wrong with me that I didn't get this part of my parent, of my father? Yeah. Um, right. And it's it's fitting that Connor Connor is there with them in that scene, almost appearing more as a peer than a son, you know, kind of just uh, um, riffing along with them. He does his little, uh, I'm a little teapot Frank Vernon is a moron. Carl Mueller is the kraut. You know, they're all joking with each other. And, and um, yeah, just an, another instance, like last week with the mausoleum of like Connor having this sort of special relationship with Logan because he doesn't, again, he doesn't put the, the psychic weight of, of, of the business and Logan being this god. Um, he doesn't, you know, center his life around it. And therefore he's a little bit more free than the rest of them. But also that, 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 video took presumably took place sometime in the three months that um you know the kids were were no contact with logan yeah not too long ago yeah that's gotta that's gotta feel a little painful for them too knowing that you know they were all sitting around and oh god jerry's limerick and then roman's face again this is just like another thing that that bothered me about the roman ending is that like he's in so much pain about jerry i have of just a very hard time seeing how he felt uh like relieved or happy at the end of this episode but anyway that's that's for that's for yeah that was, that seems bit. like that was a real casualty of the the crunch this season was the was the yeah. roman jerry storyline a lot of stuff left on the cutting room floor there but i mean as, as, aside from that feeling as i say that the the, the the viewer is kind of asking as the characters themselves seem to be asking it of what what's wrong with me that my father didn't show this to me it is of course the wrong question to be asking because the proper question is why is is why didn't logan show this to his children why wasn't he like this more often with his kids and the thing that's very telling is that the people in that room as you say gabby one of them is connor who yes maybe doesn't assign the same psychic weight to that ceo position but he's also never been really a threat to his father and it yeah. reminds you that Logan was abusive because he felt in part because he felt threatened by his children um, because he was afraid of being usurped and surpassed by them of aging and of having to hand this over to somebody else. That was why he taught them to fight each other. Right. Do, do we think that aside from spending a hundred million dollars for a futile run for president and giving really disturbing speeches when he gave it, had the opportunity to talk not rooted in any jared menken like disturbance of like god this guy could actually do damage but more like what a weird guy do we do we think beyond those things he's probably the well most well-adjusted person on the show yeah it seems that way this season I, that was something that yeah. Vikram talked about last week we've circled that idea a few times that the the quote-unquote first pancake turned out best whether that's just because of the particular circumstances of his upbringing almost a, a full generation removed uh from his siblings you know he he does have i mean he has his own issues and they're serious ones and i think that right. we we risk downplaying a little bit uh how warped and weird connor is um but he doesn't assign the same kind of like if i don't get x i will die uh exactly. importance to yeah. things <laughs> But but yeah. which is why, and again, you know, I, I'm I'm a big, uh, I'm not a con head, but I'm a I'm a Willa fan. I like how she's acted, and I like how she's written. That character is responsible for some of the funniest things ever on the show during her tenure as a playwright. I thought that <laughs> stuff was all like Thirty Rock level funny, the mysterious sand play. <laughs> but I think, but I think what's really interesting about the Connor Willer relationship, which gets that great punchline midway through the episode of like, oh God, you know, your husband might not go to the Middle East. 
it's the most explicitly transactional relationship on a show full of them, right? Like, much is made of the fact that, you know, Logan's wives are more like concubines, you know, and his assistants are like, you know, plucked for him like virginal sacrifices. Like, it's talked about at the funeral. They make a big point of it, all the stuff of his various women sitting together and all that. Like, Connor's got the most transactional relationship with the show. He literally married a sex worker, you know, in like this gradual relationship that just extended from being explicitly paying for sex and companionship more into just, well, you know, he's the one subsidizing the lifestyle. And yet I think maybe one of the reasons he feels well-adjusted, now there've been interviews and Alan Rucks talked about this. You never see him treat her poorly. Yeah. And in that sense, he's the least like his dad. He doesn't, yeah. he doesn't deal with his, um, his anxieties or his hangups or his anger by lashing out. And I wonder if one of the unspoken things there, the structure gaps is there, because obviously part of his issues are his, his mother being committed, whether that was correct or not. But like, he doesn't have Caroline for a mom. And I thought that that yeah. kind of takes two to tango in terms of how these kids were made. Because if we're going to transition to the Barbados stuff, you know, my mom called me the morning after. And I don't know if she's going to listen this far into the podcast, but mom, if you're listening, yeah, I love you. She She was like, I thought that scene was nice. It's the nicest she's ever been as a parent. And I'm like, she flew them there to have an idiot pitch a business deal to them (laughs) with an empty fridge. You know, like, she's not a good mom. And I thought that in a way, the show, again, it's not sentimental. A more sentimental show, you would at the end see revealed that she did the best she could. But, you know, her husband's Logan Roy and really all she wants is her kids to be happy. I'm like, I'm just coming out and say, she's a terrible mom within the text of the show. Yeah. You know, play like terrible. And mom. I think, I think Connor's and, mom, from what we, we don't know that much about her, but we know that, um, he has fond memories of her. Like if you yeah. remember the Reckney ball episode, cause Connor's mom was the one who started the Reckney charity. She was like, a, uh, you know, she was into philanthropy and so yep. forth. And Connor is sitting with dad in, in the car in that episode. And he's like, recalling all these happy memories. Um, I don't think, you know, the kids have any happy memories of Caroline. So no, which is which is why I just think the show's purview is wide enough and and thoughtful enough that it is dropping hints that it is not just Logan as the monster father. For sure, that, even that did Sh- this. even Shiv like when when Logan died, wishing subconsciously that it was mom that had died. Yeah, I know? forgot that. I forgot. Yeah, you're that, right. You know that was pretty telling too. Um, Caroline was a little. She was a little softer here. A little, I, but I think part of that is because she knew that She's, none of the kids were going to be able to pick up Logan's phone it's, calls. You know, it's literally <laughs> yeah. it's literally the soft sell. Um, there's yeah. a, there's a thing I really like about Harriet Walter in this role. Harriet Walter's hugely respected stage actress who I have not really seen in a lot outside of this, um, but she has this incredibly expressive face, almost like a clown. You know, like she has like, she's very capable of you know, twisting, contorting. She has these like great expressive eyes. And it's so interesting to cast her as somebody who is so cold, you know, like, yeah. like she, like she jokes and she has a dry sense of humor. Um, but in terms of like what she gives to these kids, like it's so meager, like there's so much material with food in this episode, the idea that they're getting hearty fare, but you know, but, but meager rations as she Correct. feeds them yeah. at dinner. And that's in the, as as we're kind of as you're, as we're kind of circling the, the 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 fridge for the meal fit for a king like they actually have to scrape to kind of find stuff like they're yeah. pulling out the 
the frozen loaf ends, the knobbies, uh, from the oh, freezer crazy, because though, because but... because she gave them so little. Um, it's it's I, I like the, I like this character very much. I think they've used her just enough, uh, and I I, I like the, yeah. I like the sort of perverse way that that actor's expressiveness is used here. Yeah, with the show winding up, it's kind of fun to take inventory of the who was used enough, who are you left wanting more of because it's one of those shows too that beyond the obvious gravitational pull of so many fine lead performances it is in the sopranos constellation of like incredible one scene roles or one episode roles you know people who kind of leave you wanting more the finale brought a lot of those people back they were there in a kind of wizard of oz way some people like at the board meeting and you know, people who kind of got like two seconds. I was well, it. They, they named they name dropped Lawrence. They named dropped Laird, Danny Houston, the banker. They named dropped like Ratfucker Sam. Stewie <laughs> comes back. Um, yeah, they they played some of the old hits, and um, I think it's really. I was hoping. Go ahead, Adam. I was hoping for. I was I was hoping for Adrian Brody and his layers. Oh yeah, no mention <laughs> of Josh Aronson. I no, I no I think it's I think it's really funny how much they love Peter Bunyan. Like, did we even oh, like really? I love Peter Munyon. Like, really, so like really, in plot terms, did <laughs> we need to see Peter Munyon again at all this season? And yet, I'm so delighted that we got to. And I think it's great that they thought he was so funny. They brought him back for this episode. Um, well, that's the that's that's the Brit in 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 Armstrong. Yeah. Like he clearly finds nothing funnier than that exact physical type, with that exact wardrobe and that exact haircut, speaking in that exact way. Oh, it's, it's so just, funny the way he's pitching the kids. It's like, oh, it's and great. it it does the it, it's something about like he, he some shady private equity thing with with elder care homes. You won't and, you yeah. won't get also, the amenities you wanted in your fantasy nursing home. <laughs> and <laughs> this I guess this is something that he does because it's brought up also in in, in Italy. But um yeah, it, it reminded me of Living Plus the Living Plus pitch. But um, it was just yeah that that whole scene was so funny the way that um you know kendall then like jumped out and and yeah. um and caroline's you're i can't believe how rude you're being and like <laughs> it's so so funny yeah it's a, um, a lot of again it's not just he, not just sentimentality in this episode but again the stuff that they particularly think is really funny i think it's i think it's incredible that they shortchanged the roman and jerry stuff so that we can get more peter money and like those trade-offs are just fascinating to me yeah, it is interesting with how how they make these decisions, but um, yeah, I mean, money in is hilarious. Creamy margins. Peter's special cheese was like the funniest thing ever. Um, Roman licking it and like Kendall dying of laughter. I mean, that was just yeah, it was so funny. They're they're like goofy stepdad, yeah. and then when they 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 leave, he like looks at Caroline. And he's like, well, that was a fucking waste, you know, a waste, a waste, so a waste of smarmy. time. Which is also like how I was feeling a little bit during this section. Not that it was a waste of time. That's too strong. But this was the part of the episode where I was like, okay, I'm actually getting mad at this finale now because we're, this is a 90-minute episode and mm -hmm. I, I just it just feels like we didn't actually need to spend yeah. this much time on this yeah. because the show, in dramatic terms, as the show has done so many times, it needs to dangle this possibility in front of you of the siblings coming together so that it you know is more potent when, it's, when that possibility is yanked away they need, at the end. They, they need a lesson in concision from Ted Lasso. You know, they, should have been, they should have been watching those 70, 79 minute episodes of. Uh, well, we'll we'll table that. Ted, we'll table that piece of the discussion. But I mean, I I I I think rewatching the episode, I just came around. I came around not all the way on this on this sequence on the Barbados scenes, 
but I, there was something I thought perhaps intentional or more intentional than I initially thought in the very relaxed and almost languorous way that these scenes are shaped and edited and how much time is given over to this material. There is almost this sense that like, even though in the text of the episode, it's very pressurized, like they have to make a decision before the next day. There's a feeling almost that they have all the time in the world. And as billionaires, mm. they literally do. And that if only, and if they took the time to sit together away from the context of all these boardroom machinations, corporate subterfuge, and if they could just talk to each other, they actually could sort some of this stuff out. But it doesn't last. Do we want to talk about Colin? Well, I think we should talk about the way that the various characters wrap up, and part of that is Kendall and Colin. Yeah. Um, I mean, I mean, he's he's kind of just a graphic element in the episode, but a very suggestive one, I thought. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, the we talked about the actual climax of the episode with the blow up between the siblings, and then. I thought for a second when Ken's gets on that elevator, wouldn't it be great if that was the la <laughs> literally the last we ever saw of Kendall that he takes the elevator down and he's never seen again. We get we only get a little bit more of Kendall after that. We get that beautiful final silent scene of him walking through Battery Park and sitting down before the water. And we had talked last week about the very odd idea that Colin was going to go work for Kendall, someone he doesn't like. Um, where he's often been at Oz with. And the idea that that scene was setting Colin up for some role in the finale, I think, was very much on my mind. And the role that Colin ends up playing is in line with what he's always been on the show, which is a more symbolic presence that signifies portent and dread. And he's, but, he, but it is an incredibly significant one because he's literally in the final shot of the series where Kendall is, again, quite literally between the devil, Colin, and the deep blue sea. And the notion that I had a hard time squaring that Colin was just going to assume the subservient position to Kendall as he had with Logan as the new CEO, that just didn't sit right with me. But it makes much more sense, I think, for Colin to be dogging his master's footsteps in this context where Kendall is completely broken and isolated and in that sense there is something almost vengeful and spiteful in Colin both keeping him alive and keeping him trapped um, I like that I like that ending very much it's an incredibly eloquent yeah. gorgeous final set of shots I, I thought so too and I think because it's the end of the show you can cherry pick a little bit going back through because you know we're not we're not ranking episodes like the ringer did or or, or something like that we're you know it's the end so you can talk a little bit about things that were seated earlier on and i've said this to brendan he's sick of me saying it but you know i say it again which is there was something uh beyond nightmarish in that season one finale which even tv shows that often depict death and murder and movies that depict death and murder don't go at. The idea of something that could be so immediate and vivid and then over so quickly and just recede and it's like time moves forward and it's over. You know, the kid dies. Kendall goes back to the hotel and he changes and Whitney Houston song is on the dance floor and that, 
you know, if you choose to repress and if you choose to move on, like that's what putting a skeleton in your closet is like. I thought it was horrifying. Yeah. You know, and I, I and I'm not easily, you know, I'm, not, I'm not a prudish viewer, you know, but I was like, they made that small thing signify on such a morbid, universal level, and I've always, you know, Colin is sort of just this like horrible reminder of the knowledge. Yes. The knowledge of that, that gets otherwise airbrushed away or paid off. And it's not the same as the siblings hearing about it from, from Kendall. Because, I mean, prior to this ep- this season, I mean, the, the most cathartic moment in the history of the show was Strong's monologue at the end of season three, but where his, I'm all apart. Right. Right? Like, you know, the show's played this card a few times. But yeah, Colin as a reminder of that. Yeah, and Colin of... Colin knows the dirty details of it too. You he does. know, and and you know what you were saying about you know the darkness of that episode. Nobody is ever missing, which I think is I can say conclusively now is my favorite episode of the series. Um, you know, after that, the Summer Palace, the the season two premiere. There's that. You know, Brendan and I were recently talking about it because I'm I'm, uh, you know, we're, we're talking a little bit about our favorite episodes and and there's that scene in the summer palace in the laundry room between Ken and Colin Colin is basically breaking down for him what happened um that Andrew Dodd that the waiter that he had unclipped his seatbelt um you know and then Kendall has to react to that and you can see, you can just like see the 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 guilt sort of like uh you know it, it's just completely um you know he's subsumed by it, and and in that conversation, it's so embarrassing for Kendall because to have you know his dad and his dad's fixer clean up this like you know very very awful situation that was uh you know precipitated by him needing drugs you know another thing that you know can bring up shame for Kendall um and and that other people can look down and for and Colin Colin knows all that it's funny because his siblings like they didn't really think it was a big deal you know they were like. You know, well, bigger, bigger fish too, to fry you know? at the moment. Who yeah. cares? Um, but, uh, you know, for someone like Colin, um, I mean, yeah, he's we don't we don't know too much about his inner life. But but, you know, we we learned a little bit more about him this season. And he probably came from somewhat humble beginnings, probably, a, you know, a cop family, um, army family, con- a little bit more conservative, repressed. You know, he he, he really represents a, a lot about the show. And um, they could have taken the waiter stuff and, and sort of done something hacky with it where you know Shiv a lot of people were saying oh Shiv's gonna like she's gonna tell everybody you know and and but like what would that have done you know um nothing really so so for I think that they you know I was I was worried that this this might have been dropped but they ended up threading this I think really really nicely um in the way that it was brought up in the 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 fight with the kids Kendall's denial of it, just like absolutely psychotic, um, the way that that, you know, sort of changed Roman and Shit's tune. But then, yeah, the, the show ending with Colin with somebody and then and they're at the water, you know, they're they're there. And then there was a wasn't there a, a, an, another take where Jeremy Strong like <laughs> flings himself well, over the. <laughs> I thought that I thought that behind the scenes detail was so perfect. I mean, obviously, so many people fixated on the idea that Strong had such a conviction in his inhabiting the character that he was at an end point that he actually, you know, in an, in an improvisation tried to climb over the rail and into the water. People really fixated on that. But for me, the really telling detail that I thought was so perfect was that Scott Nicholson, Colin ran over to stop him. 
And I was like, because that's actually, because the scene's not actually about, you know, five seconds later, Ken kills himself. The scene is all, the scene is about Colin is keeping him there. The, his, this, this guy who used to work for his father to keep him safe and who at times was tasked by Logan with keeping his eldest son safe from himself is now going to be doing that presumably forever. And it's a great import of not just, you know, the sins of the past, but the way that the sort of like apparatuses of wealth and these people, these retinues that they accumulate around them, they end up shackling them and binding them in ways that are really health unhealthy and corrosive. And yeah, yeah it's, maybe it's, Colin just, it's just a great he didn't image. want to get away. Yeah. He was just he's too bound up in it. I mean, it, it reminded me of Safe Room when Logan asked Colin, you know, is he safe? Re rekindle and, and you know, I think um Colin does know that that Logan did worry about Kendall's well-being. He didn't want any of his kids to, you know, go around the bend and off themselves. But yeah, it's 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 this very kind of like dark, menacing presence. Um, and it it will be interesting if he sort of <laughs> shadows Kendall for the rest of his life. I mean, I don't know if Kendall really needs security like uh, Logan did, but um, if only from himself, I, really... right? <laughs> so, yeah, literally just his. Oh yeah. God! <laughs> well, and 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 you know, it was Mc McFadden was the one who gave the interview, and you know, I mean, a lot of people are quote tweeting interviews as if these interviews are asking dumb questions. I mean, they're not. They're asking the questions that you're supposed to ask in a Q and A, and it's what people want to read. So I know it's annoying all these people who are saying, "What do you think happens to the characters after the ending?" But it's like these are not the first journalists asking these questions, right? Yeah. But I do think that if, that that when I thought about it the most vivid post-show character that I can think of, and it's a testament to the performance, is, you know, I can imagine Kendall in that trap. And I think that what the last show showed, I don't know what you guys think of this, is that he didn't quote-unquote win, and we're not sure what winning means or power rankings mean or whatever else, but that last shot did confirm. The point of view of the show, and the extent to which it ever had a protagonist, is him. Yes, for sure. Right? I think that that, in a way, was a bit, not the point of the episode or the point of the show, but where you choose to end is pretty significant. And I think that, you know, Kendall, I always found the most electrifying entry point into the show and probably the point of view or the fixation point that I always was the most compelled by. And I'm not saying this to be like a dick or anything, but that's why that, that shot in the limo at the end, Shiv and Tom, Everything is well staged and well acted and makes sense. I didn't care. Uh, yeah. That's that's not meant to be glib. I just, I, I I just didn't. But you give me Kendall in that shot with Colin, sort of in 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 non focus, almost like back to the game style opening credits. You know, it's a very Fincherian frame. Yeah. That 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 last frame, and I'm like completely compelled. Yeah, I mean, it's it's interesting that all the talk seemed to be about the final shot of, of uh, Tom and Shiv and people arguing about the interpretation of that, that handhold. Um, yeah, I, I, I didn't really care that much either. To me, it just it seemed pretty obvious what, what that meant, you know? Well, they're, um, they're the ones who are really in their own little closed loop system, too. Yes. I mean, Shiv is the one who stays kind of nominally the closest to power at the end of the show. Like, she and Tom are in a much more sort of, like, level footing now with him as, you know, nominally the CEO, but kind of disempowered within that structure. 
and she has, you know, the wife who's going to be the mother of his child and probably will still always be richer than him. Um, right. Like, they, they will have maneuvers, you know, that will be a, a more of a give and take than it has in the past. Mylod, I think, I thought kind of amusingly said that he had hope for their relationship. I was like, well, what does hope mean in this context? <laughs> you know, that, 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 that they're going to stay together. Is that a good thing? Um, I think right. I think they will, and there will be back and forth. It'll just be, I think, diminishing returns, and it makes sense to leave them there. Um, yeah. yeah, I mean, we can we we've already talked a bit about the final shot of Roman. Something that came up again in one of those Mylod interviews was he was talking about the specter of kind of like uh, Roman descending into alcoholism in that scene, which I thought was an interesting idea because the 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 very sort of tight shot on him with the shallow depth of field it does highlight those wounds and it does highlight the specter of kind of self harm as he does, you know, mm. begin to drink. Um, but the show has always been so sort of like, I don't know, skittish about depicting substance abuse, especially as it relates to Roman. Like there was a, I, th yeah. I, think, I think we had a perception for a while that he was even teetotal because they didn't really show him consuming that much. So that was not something that was terribly present well, I know for he me drinks. in that scene. We do yeah. know that he drinks, yeah, yeah. But they, they make a lot of allusions in the early seasons that like Roman is like, the, oh, he's like this cokehead. But I think that was more the original conception of Roman as like the bro with the wife that he cheats on and stuff and, and yeah. uh, less of what they actually turned Roman into. You know, you, uh, you never see Roman, you know, snorting cocaine or anything like that. Um, there are episodes where it seems like he has been, but they, but they don't show it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. But, you know, um. I don't know. That's weird for me to think about. Like, that's not really interesting. Like, what? Like, Ro suddenly Roman has an alcohol problem. You know, again, like, I don't want to say that we deserve for everything to be resolved. But, you know, they really built up a lot there in terms of, you know, the dick pic stuff and and um, the, you know, not able to pee the, in the, front of men, things like this. The sexual yeah. issues, like Tabitha, he needed Tabitha to pretend she was dead when they were having sex. The fixation um, on incest. I mean, in, yeah. I mean, in that scene where he brings up the thing about Ken's kids, you know, that is right. the moment of the real, like, repressed or the unspoken thing being said. Yeah. And if there was yeah. something that was going to be said about Roman, it would have been there. The fact that it doesn't right. suggests to me that, you know, not only did they not work out a way within the dramatic matrix that they wanted to parcel out that information, but also that it, it may not be information that the other characters actually have access to. Like, we, like I think we also have gotten sense throughout the series that the characters just don't know, and, uh, and Roman himself has suppressed it so much that he may not be right. able to divulge it either. So it may just be one of those things that they decided, you know, and, and, and which certainly tracks for me what... is not is not something that could reasonably come out in the course of the drama, absent just, some great intervention. Like... Yeah, no, no, you, that, that's that's true. But this was this was such a powerful season for Roman, and like he kind of has know, he just... kind of has his climax in episode nine. I think I, I think we're looking for a more dramatic payoff for him when in reality, I think they, they had brought him to the logical conclusion of his character yeah. in that episode. Yeah. And I don't think they were going to, and they did. I mean, we only briefly touched on it, but that scene of the, the masochistic crushing bear hug embrace between him and Kendall, I thought was just, Oof. it's, it's an example of one of the things I'm really going to miss about this show, because there's no other shows that I can think of that had, that made room for such an expressive, ambiguous gesture like that between the actors in the performance and the wild. direction. It, it comes out of nowhere. It's quite violent physically and emotionally. Um, 
it's it's very haunting i i, I love there's that a scene. lot of, of 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 violence and sort of like grotesque stuff in this episode i mean the whole series really uh is repressed in the, in the sense that we don't we don't get like sex scenes that are you know people are enjoying themselves uh if, if we do get sex scenes at all like they're they're you know dark and awkward there's tons of implied sex but um you know we've talked about there is this like kind of dark libidinal energy um to the show and this it, you know i i think it makes sense for them to have made this sort of like a, a violent episode between the stitches bursting even like tom and greg's little fight like they've never like had a fight like that like he literally slapped him in the face yeah, that was um, that was I, I wish... that was fun too uh, an- that was great an- great 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 use of the score there too yeah that was, another that tidbit was another tidbit uh from one of these post-show interviews uh they didn't choreograph that scene the actors were just said no we that's great we, we got it they just went in there and actually and it. actually hit each other which is fun yeah i mean i think that speaks to their like their acting relationship they're so close that they were able to to pull that off well any but um, any words for for greg where he ends up he ends up as human furniture with the sticker boo, on his forehead boo. sticker on his forehead yeah greg greg i liked his move with the uh translation of the of the swedes talking what was, app was, was that funny, you know i don't know i don't know if that actually is a thing Did they invented i feel like a shazam like for I languages i mean that. that seems like an yeah. obvious thing i've just ne- i had never seen that app before i was like oh well that's cool i guess i ever yeah. need to do corporate espionage you know with, with, uh, with the, the norway guys i know who i'm going to be talking to well, you know i, I think i think we can say that greg was an interesting experiment in like better than expected returns for longer than one might reasonably have thought and then in the end diminishing returns again as a character he had some moments this season but he's not in the class of the other protagonists as an actor or as a character not no. really no, I mean, I, I, I spoke a lot about uh, how much I loved the way he was used in the election episodes. I thought that his particular sort of caricature of an underling who was willing to, you know, press the big red button and launch the nukes, I thought that that was put to very good dramatic satirical use there. Um, in a lot, uh, but yes, in a lot of episodes, they did have difficulty finding a place for him. And uh, it, 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 it's fine, I guess, that he ends up where he started. Um, as just the 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 executive assistant to a more powerful Tom Wamskans, nominally speaking. Um, but I don't know. I was kind of hoping that he would get chewed up or trampled underfoot because that would have been funnier to me. I think that Greg and Tom, with the exception of Kendall's hip hop lungers, you know, Greg and Tom were sort of the the parasocial relationship meme factory stars of Succession for. A good long while because the show teased a certain gayness and like a hot gayness between them that yeah the queer kind, writing, yeah w- was hard to not enjoy because the actors are comfortable with each other and they're attractive and it 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 was everything as you're saying the dark libido that the show had Gabby I mean that's such a good way to put it you know like yeah I I still think like funniest sex scene in any modern movie or one of the funniest sex scenes is the the hand job that Philip Seymour Hoffman gets in the master where it basically <laughs> the orgasm basically sounds like, I don't know, like, like he's just like put down something really heavy or something. Like, it's just like horrible, you yeah. know? And that's what you imagine the sounds of sex on this show are like, it's all under the sign of that, like worst hand job of all time. <laughs> but I mean, but the, the Tom Greg stuff, especially in bite sized pieces or focusing in on certain shows, like that's where a lot of the sublimated, 
eroticism of the show was. And you could imagine a show by more pandering people. They would have leaned into that more and more and more and more and yeah. more and given the audience what they want. And they didn't. Not really. Well, yeah. we're, I mean, that's okay. we're running down the end of our outline here. But speaking of queer baiting, Stewie. Um, oh, yeah. I, I, yeah. I, like that, uh, I like that Stewie gets to kind of come through for Kendall in a way that he didn't in the initial board vote, which, of course, is entirely situational, where it seems like Ken has the upper hand, so Stewie is happy to be Team Ken baby in that scene. Well, don't they offer him They offer him a chair position, too? Oh, sure. I mean, he's already on the board, but yeah, it's, it's, he's, he'll, he'll definitely benefit from Ken being CEO and being his pal. Uh, but, of course, in classic Stewie fashion, as soon as Ken's out, he's sucking up to Tom. Uh, yeah. But there was yeah. also, yeah, the, speaking of the queer baiting there, there's, like, that line when Stewie's like, you know, I like weird sex and bad drugs. And Kendall's like, please, like, you like Molly and kissing boys, you know? And uh, I can just, <laughs> that that was like a, I enjoyed it because I do think that, uh, <laughs> like, Stewie has been a fun character and a fun foil yeah. kind of for Kendall throughout the series. And uh, they sort of, there's always, there's always been some sort of like sexual tension between them something some sort of like yeah. homo homoeroticism so so i enjoyed that something the actors um, enjoyed yeah. playing uh something moya definitely enjoyed playing sort they sort of ran yeah. out of uh ideas for him i think after the first season it was always kind of a struggle to keep him involved but it, he was always a welcome presence on the show and never oh, never yeah. felt shoehorned in and can we give a little shout to one I, a great moment was the smug pointless little virtue bit that Ewan had before his board vote oh, yeah. was, was do great. No first do no harm. Like, do first, no harm. <laughs> first, first do no harm. And then, you know, voting for his fucking unscrupulous, uh, you know, nephew who he, 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 he referred to the previous episode as, you know, what kind of person would interrupt a eulogy for, for a share price. I mean, I kudos to James Cromwell, who's an absolute G like he's such yeah, a great, man. He's such a great actor and he's so well cast given his like actual radical right. political bona fides. But again, the show is good enough to not make that character in any way a moral paragon right. of anything. He's, yeah, a, sh he's, a, he's a shit. It's great. Yeah. I, I thought it was very plausible. They, they, they say briefly that Ewan will just vote the status quo, but I mean, I'm sure he's also thinking, well, gee, do I want this company to that is the Death Star to double in size overnight? Uh, there's there's, very, there's yeah. a very good reason yeah. for him to vote with Kendall. The other, uh, I, can't, I can't imagine he feels like very positively about big tech either. No, which was no of one, course. One of, the other, one of the other old guys uh, also said that, you know. It, Paul, does, Paul doesn't trust doesn't tech. Tr yeah, yeah, yeah. He doesn't trust tech. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I, ju I just thought I just thought it was significant that in the end, he's there with his seat and his vote. It is. Yeah, yeah. You know? He's right there, right after he, giving he, that eulogy. Yeah, yeah. Right yeah. after that eulogy. Yeah. Right there after giving that eulogy. You know, because one of the most priceless moments in the show's run was when he tells Greg very solemnly, "I'm giving your inheritance <laughs> to, to 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 Greenpeace," which is so mean. <laughs> And you know the this righteousness he has with everything. I like that he's yeah just there in the boardroom with. Uh, and you know we don't have to go around and say goodbye to everybody, but I also do think that if we're gonna do the stupid thing where it's like which actors would you watch in a spinoff, I kind of decided yesterday. I think I think Frank and Frank and Carl have 
yeah, God, have, please, le- have legs. Please. The little the little frickin' frack spinoff. I would definitely watch their Thick of It spinoff for sure. I mean, like the okay. the Thick of It spinoff about the Gojo years. I mean, yeah, it would be a different, probably much lesser show, but it would be fucking great. I would love it. Um, so I don't get it. Are they just they're just gonna get bought out now? Basically, Golden Parachute. That's it. Uh, well, not bought yeah. out, but canned, and they can cash in their stock. Yeah. Can yeah. and they can cash in their stock, and I, all that flashes to me is the image of them at the Matson retreat, sitting, oh, yeah. outside, sitting, duck. <laughs> sitting outside the sun in the robes, which was again very memeable. Yeah, but uh, Carl's gonna get his uh, Greek island, and uh, yeah, no, those guys were they're, they're they're great, Lord Willen. Yeah, and the last uh, supporting character I wanted to shout out because I had mentioned it earlier in the season, I got my wish, and and Telus the banker came back. <laughs> I thought I I thought I thought this was really funny how like angry Shiv seems to be at Telus like how much she seems to hate him. him. I really like the I really like the idea. She says I detest. I really like the idea that they just like resent these guys so much for because they're just these uh, fancy boys with their MBAs who quote unquote advise on the deals and collect a fat fee as opposed to what they do to earn their money. I guess by inheriting it. I thought that was very. I just think that's a very funny detail that they just load this guy and resent having to pay him money. He's a he's a parasite on a parasite. Um, right. Well, gosh. Um, closing thoughts. How do we wrap this up? Um, I don't know. This is this is a lot, guys. Well, you're, well you're well, you're you're the ones who should talk. I mean, now what do you guys do? What's beyond the frame for for you? Are you guys just staring out into the yeah the water? Yeah, I'm gonna go get a get a nice picturesque bench with a view and, uh, battery and, park and yeah. contemplate just hang out contemplate there. my my soul. Um, yeah. Well, I feel like, you know, there's always going to be stuff that we can return to. Every single episode that we've done over the years, there's always stuff afterwards where we're like, ah, oh, shit, we didn't talk about that. And I, I just feel like with the show this dense, this rich, um, you know, I, I don't want to stop talking about it forever. I, I, I need a little break. <laughs> um, well, here's my, here, here's my question for you guys as the hosts of the best succession <laughs> podcast. Right? TM. TM, uh, do you buy the idea, not just that this is a zeitgeist show in design and execution and reception, which it is, mm-hmm. right? Yeah. But that when we get a longer view on things and as, you know, history continues and all of our heroes keep churning out content, you know, do you think that this is going to ultimately be a kind of genuinely teachable you had to be there and this helps you be there kind of tissue sample artwork you know is 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 that really kind of the the the, the pantheon we're talking about here like not where does it rank as the great shows of all time mm-hmm. or how many emmys is it going to win is this like actually a helpful piece of art for understanding this moment especially in retrospect because i'm going to just say you guys answer the question but in answer asking the question i'm going to answer i think i think yes I don't think it's hyperbolic to say that this is probably within a certain industrial range, like probably a signature, a signature work in American pop culture. I agree. I don't see how it's not. You know, if they had maybe uh, gone too, too fi- put too fine a point on like some of the, the themes regarding misogyny and the cruises stuff and the political stuff. Uh, again, if they had gone more newsroomy, Sorkin-y there, um, it might not hold up. But they they left it abstract enough, and they keyed in on 
the family dynamics first and foremost. And and those are that's everlasting, you know. That stuff is never going to not be relevant um to examine. Yeah, I mean the idea of like abstraction and like having room to kind of ruminate on the show, let alone go back and pick it apart cuz it's so dense. I think is interesting to think about in terms of this being a purely present tense work versus one that's built for posterity. Because again, circling back to that initial point I made about this never being something where it was like a 10 hour movie or a 40 hour movie or something. It's also something that was not designed with that kind of master of the universe, you know, perfectionist intentionality. Like the right. one of the, I think that how much I love and feel attached to this material has so much to do with the way it was made and the way it was made with this approach to collaboration and improvisation in leaving things open and what that means also in a kind of negative way in terms of its appreciation for posterity is that it is genuinely rough around the edges and there is stuff that I don't think works and there is stuff that's going to be a lot easier to nitpick in hindsight for people who want to go back and say actually they didn't handle this very well in this season or this or this this, this was kind of weird when this got dropped and that was there along the way too but it kind of gets right, washed right. out in the you know in the immediacy of the show's hype and just the pure fucking force of the thing but as we're wrapping this up exactly, as we're yeah. wrapping this up in a context also where the major creative industries in the u.s are going on strike for the ability to continue making art in a context where you know you can actually earn a living and have a healthy and productive relationship uh with the people around you where you're not just scrambling and gigging all the time you know a big reason the succession was good was because they had the resources to keep those creative people around and to let them create and let them write and let writers and actors and performers and camera people create in a context where that was prized and valued. Um, and I don't see a, a lot of other successions on the horizon for a variety of no. reasons. And that's, uh, I think, a, a note that I would want to underline as to, as to why this thing was successful, aside from the very real genius of the people that got together in a, in a lightning in a bottle way to make it. Yeah, and I guess the thing that this episode, well, <laughs> I say this episode, like, it really did feel like I was just watching another episode, but it is the series finale, um, you know, in the sense that that they didn't go for a big swing and they, they stuck to this, you know, idea of the, the vortex and the kids. The longer we've done this podcast, the more I think I've come to see, like, the tragedy as fixed and the comedy as the stuff that's, like, very dynamic and, and um, you know, I love thinking about succession like a sitcom like i never did but we've had so many guests who've come in and and brought that perspective and of course the drama is like what prompts this like very like voracious desire in me to talk about the show for like hundreds of hours um but ultimately like there's something comforting about the fact that nothing really changed at the end of this series um you know i guess like the stagnancy the 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 maintenance of the status quo you know they were they were all sort of pre-written and um, there's something comforting about that. And I love rewatching the episodes because of what Brendan was talking about there. They, you know, it's not designed to resolve everything, to put a neat bow on everything. It le lends itself to multiple interpretations. Um, and yeah, I, I mean, I, I don't, I don't see how any show <laughs> could match this in the near future. Um, you know, it's, it's, it's a, it's a loss for sure. But um, yeah, it's such a rich text. There, there will always be stuff to return to, and there's there's fun stuff too that that uh, we might have on the horizon as well. No promises. 
Well, uh, we should. <laughs> uh, we should. We should. We should let Adam go. Um, but um, do you? Uh, thanks so much for doing this and for chatting with us throughout the season and for supporting us over the years. And yeah, of course. Thank you. Thank you for having me. I mean, you guys should take a bow for running uh, a tight, a tight, a tight cruise ship of a podcast with you know, <laughs> no, no, no real casualties. You guys got in on the ground floor. I'm mixing my metaphors now, but you guys got in on the ground floor of this show. You took it seriously from the beginning. You had a really great range of guests, and I hope you know, not necessarily for this episode because you know I was on it, but for all of them. I mean, that the little suggestions you've given that people involved with the show, you know, listen. You know, I hope that I hope that you guys get some feedback from them about the degree of like care and detail and nuance that you've done with their work. And that goes for technical personnel as well as for the actors and and and, and for the writers. But to both of your points before, I think the show's worthy of this kind of deconstruction. Like we are not we are in a podcast surplus economy. Mm-hmm. We have we have enough podcasts about everything. But, you know, if Succession's an essential show, you guys kind of did the essential, the essential Succession podcast. So kudos, kudos to you guys as you, kudos to you guys as you, as you hang it up. Very high praise coming from you. Yeah. Thank you to everyone. Like, thank you to people and the the cast and the crew who were with us from the beginning and and supporting our Instagram and and everybody who interacts with us on social media. Like it, it, it means so much. It's been such a great experience. I mean, we didn't even know if the show would get a second season. We just <laughs> were like, I need to talk about this. So let's do it. And it, it transformed obviously into something so much bigger. And we'll, and, uh, and we'll all meet again yeah. when the cash in prequel, the young Sheldon showing the Roy's as children <laughs> premieres in uh, 2000 and uh, 2028. Hey, if it's, if it's Jesse, I trust him, you know? Yeah. Adam, anything you want to plug for our listeners one last time before we go? I just want to plug, you know, fresh air and time time with the people who you love and <laughs> um yeah, I mean I, I tweeted the other day that I've started writing another book. I won't say what it's about, but the first, you know, like eighty words are okay so far. So, <laughs> you know, give me give me give me two years and and, and I'll tell everyone what it's about. We'll be waiting to do a full chapter by chapter podcast about it. That's highly unlikely. <laughs> Thank you guys for having me. Of course, man. And yeah, so that is the end of this season of Roycast. Uh, we don't know exactly where the podcast goes from here, but we can say with some certainty that this will not be our last episode. Gabby and I will take a break, hopefully a short one, and then be back with some more thoughts on succession as a whole. In case this is the last episode of Roycast that most folks end up listening to, we did want to say a few thanks. First of all, to all of our guests for showing up and lending their time, their insights, and their online clout to the show. I want to thank our producer, Dan, without whom, if he had not come aboard in season two to offer his time, talent, and counsel, the podcast might not have continued for as long as it did. We wanted especially to thank our founding co-host, Kate, without whom none of us would have met each other or started this project. At various points in the last few years, life has gotten in the way of all of us contributing to the show as much as we would like, and we've ended up finishing it without Kate, but we love her, and we are so grateful for the time we spent working on the show together. 
And thanks finally to our listeners, everybody who rated and reviewed us kindly, threw a few bucks our way, downloaded the show, or chatted with us online about Succession, and made this project feel like more than shouting into tin cans. We hoped most of all <laughs> that this podcast would help create some community around a work of art we care about, and uh, we don't take that for granted. And Gabby... Uh, thanks, everybody. Gabby, uh, just one, one final quote from the show, you know, to quote Logan Roy, you're my pal. You're my best pal. Aww. And, uh, <laughs> thanks. And we'll sign off there. <laughs> Me too. Take care of yourselves, everybody. Goodbye.